0: Welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brum.
1: I'm John Story. Together, we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're featuring Los Angeles-based Session guitarist Tim May.
2: A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash high action well welcome everybody to episode 36 of the high action podcast hey perry nice glasses hey will thanks for noticing my blue blockers (laughs) Tell, tell the listeners about your blue blocker glasses oh
0: man they feel great but they look terrible
2: And they don't have to, you know, This is
0: the perfect thing for a podcast because nobody has to see our faces. (laughs) So we can be looking ridiculous in our little home studios. But, you know, man, we spend so much time on the screens now that uh, I need these blue blockers, man. I'm teaching guitar lessons, recording, all this stuff. And it's like my eyes are starting to hurt, you know? So I got these these nice blue blockers from Amazon. What do you think? (laughs) Now I'm joining the glasses club, right?
2: Well, John doesn't wear glasses anymore, so...
0: I'm just I'm I've been taking a break
1: from them because everything's in my near field of vision, so I don't need them. It's great.
2: <laughs> Is that and why? I, okay, all right.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know I, I wear them when I drive and when I walk around and when I want to look cool in press pictures. But other than that, it's nice not to wear them around around the house.
2: <laughs> so today we're releasing an episode with guitarist Tim May who's a wonderful top-notch studio musician and who's basically kept a very elusive social media internet profile. So it was kind of cool getting to talk with someone that you really couldn't find out that much about. Mm -hmm. And one of the cool things that he was talking about when he was subbing for Joe pass on a gig, I think at Dante's, he was with a big band and he was talking about using his volume pedal And a volume pedal, um, I just wanted to discuss that with you guys and get your opinions, because I think it's arguably one of the most important things any guitarist can have today. Mm -hmm. John, what do you think about that?
1: Definitely. And, I mean, it was kind of not something I was, you know, um, that I needed a lot until I played, really, in New West. Yeah, you know, it seems like the gigs that are the loudest... I really want it because I want that nuance and I want the control of the volume. And, um, you know, a lot of gigs where you're playing some pretty heavy duty rhythm guitar and then you got to really crank um, to, to kind of solo over a loud rhythm section. Um, more like funk kind of stuff or stuff with horn sections. It's really great. I like it. And it's it's a fun effect to use. It's just kind of for an attack mm-hmm. to kind of like attack a note and bring the bring the, the swell in. And gosh, volume pedals have sure come a long way, even in the last 15, 20 years. I mean, all these new ones, um, I think the one that we kind of use in New West is that Dunlop Volume X is, is the cool. Mini. The Mini, mini, Yeah. So I'd be curious what you guys are using these days, but yeah, I I definitely love it, and I can't certain situations can't imagine not having one anymore these days. Yeah,
2: I think of it as like a master fader of your sound, and you know, like you said, when you need that boost, or in an ensemble case like New West blending, if one person's melody comes out, we just inch that volume pedal up. Perry, I'm sure you, being primarily a 175 player, very much appreciate having that volume pedal boost ability. I do,
0: but you know the volume pedal can can bring out some bad habits. It also can kind of work against you like you got to be careful with how you use the volume pedal too uh, It can mess with the tone of the instrument too you know so and they break down i mean. We've gone through so many volume pedals in New West, but it's a crucial pedal to have, especially in New West, Will, with what you were talking about when we blend parts and go from playing like rhythm guitar where you really want to dig in to try and get a nice touch when you're playing something uh, out like a lead or a solo or something. Mm -hmm. So it is a crucial pedal, but I sometimes really enjoy gigs where I don't have to touch the volume pedal at all where I'm just dealing with the dynamics in my hands. And I'm not even fiddling with the uh, volume on my guitar that much. But this is the, you know, a huge element that we all have to deal with as guitar players, especially if you're playing, you know, like an acoustic instrument, like a box or something like that is got to deal with volume.
2: I definitely recommend the Dunlop volume X mini. We've yes. been using that I think since 2016 or so. And it's pretty solid. It's awesome
1: an instrument that's closely related to ours that has been so critical with volume pedals is pedal steel players, you know, forever. Like that's a major part of that instrument and Goodrich, I've had a couple of those volume pedals and those are pretty slick, but yeah, like Perry said, they're high maintenance. When they get dusty, they get really, really noisy. And boy, for guys like us that have a pretty um, big need for clean sound, uh, noisy, noisy stuff can be a, a real drag, you know, when you, when you're trying to get a suit, sound um, through your signal chain. So yeah, it's, it's a, definitely a high maintenance part of the pedal
2: board for sure. So volume pedals, high action podcast approved. Now, before yeah. we get <laughs> on to Tim May, we want to remind you to go on over to Patreon. And if you're really liking what you're hearing, go ahead and support us on Patreon. There's all kinds of fun, exclusive content on there. Most recently, my face being frozen on Zoom <laughs> on uh, on one of our discussion <laughs> videos. So if you want to see that ghastly image, make sure you sign up. John, why don't you tell the listeners about some of the other perks?
1: Well, and you know, not to mention with just Patreon, don't forget at Teespring we have a high action store, and you can get coffee mugs. You can get these really great T-shirts. New West. T-shirts, new and high-action T-shirts and mugs. So check out Teespring for sure, and you can search us there um, by looking up High Action or New West Guitar Group. It'll pop up either way. And yeah, with Patreon, things are going great. We are technically still in a spring pledge drive, and our goal is to get to 25 subscribers, and we're really close. I think we're just six away. Um, We've been working on a bunch of new video content of New West Guitar Group stuff for you guys to release on there, so be sure to head over to Patreon, and we really appreciate you all uh, supporting the podcast.
2: We do. Keep supporting, keep enjoying, and enjoy episode 36 with Tim May. Sam, I must say, it's really fitting that your picture isn't here because you're quite an elusive character to track down online. I was trying to find, like, a bio, or you keep it elusive, which adds to your
3: mystique. Uh, yeah, that's my thing, my mystique. There's, You know, there's a lot of stuff online um, uh, with the, the different discographies and stuff like that. It's that elusive. Although, as you said, I'm not a big... Uh, go out there and do a big PR thing, you know, I'm mostly maybe the elusive thing is good.
2: <laughs> so actually this, I'm glad you brought this up. Cause I didn't actually know where you were born. And one of the things I'd like to cover is really just talking about, you know, how you came up, how you came connected to music. If you could fill in those dots for us to get us started.
3: Oh, well, uh, like I said, I was born in Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, in 1953, <laughs> so I'm an old guy, <laughs> but, which we'll get into that later. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I grew up, um, fortunately, I came from a totally musical family. Uh, my dad was a very accomplished musician, a great bass player. He played piano and woodwinds and, and lots of stuff like that. But I kind of, since I could, uh, well, since I was a little baby, there was nothing but music in the house. And my uncles, uh, my, one, my dad's brother, Frank May, played in uh, the Cleveland Orchestra for 37 years with George Zell. And he was a, really a great bass player as well. And uh, the other brother was a bass player. My grandfather, he played violin and all that kind of stuff. So it was just kind of in the house all the time, you know. And uh, I, think, I think we had every instrument in the house except a guitar. So naturally, that's what I started deciding I wanted to play <laughs> when I was about eight. And uh, uh, my dad hooked me up with being, you know, being in the business. He knew the good teachers, and there was a, a guy named Carl Polifico in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was just an excellent guitar teacher. And uh, so, I, anyway, I started lessons with him, and I, and I started out like you know, I went over to his house where he gave the lessons, and and uh they, he said here's your guitar and it was a stella you know like a singing cowboys all over the front of it and stuff like that but it was a little stella guitar and he said here's your book and here's your pick and i started out learning the e string and right right off the bat i started uh learning the stuff you know the reading music and, and the real the real deal and as as well as that though you know being uh the, the beatles had just come out a little bit and stuff like that was going on. So I was naturally in- interested in all the pop music going on, you know, uh, and I had an older sister who was uh, three years older and she always had, uh, you know, all the latest pops up going on and the, you know, the pop radio stations. And my dad always had, um, you know, Miles Davis and Oscar Peterson and he would bring all these records home. And I so said, I get that end of things. And then my uncle was in the classical vein, so I kind of got hit with that, too. So it was a nice broad, uh, you know, exposure to a lot of that music stuff. Uh, so then, well, so, so I started taking lessons and playing and, you know, getting pretty good. Uh, and, and, you know, when I was about 12, you know, we started the little cover bands and talent shows and all that kind of stuff, the typical thing that people do. And uh, then, you know, by the time I was like fourteen, I was—I realized I was getting real serious about, uh, you know, being a musician. You know, I really, you know, that was my direction. Um, then, when I was fifteen, well, um, <clears throat> quick little story: my my dad and I went to the NAM show in Chicago. Uh, at the, in those days, you could just walk in. You know, there's no—you know, <laughs> didn't need you know, a NAMM pass. Yeah, I know. Now they don't even have they didn't even have a show this year because of the COVID. Anyway, so we went there, and, and uh, the Gibson at the Gibson booth was a, a gentleman named Bruce Bowling, who I don't know if you know that name, but he was with Gibson for years, and, and they were playing. Uh, he was showing the new Citation guitar, and, and this and that, and talking. And I got to play a little bit, and uh, he said, "Well, you, Johnny Smith," he told me, he "was having a seminar." The, the following summer in Colorado Springs it was Johnny's first seminar. He said you should go to that. You know, so I said, "Yeah, great." But I was only 14 years old, so I, I that that that's next summer. I, I earned enough money to go because I painted my neighbor's underhang in his house, <laughs> which was great. Yeah, so I got got good money, and, and uh, you know, my parents were very supportive they let me go to Colorado Springs, and. Uh, at Johnny's seminar, and that was really I enlightening. Mean, by now, I'm, I'm playing pretty good. You know, I'm not I'm not you know. I was only 14, but I was kind of getting you know ahead of things. So anyway, I went to Johnny's uh, seminar, and I met Howard Roberts there. Howard was a guest, a, another one of my favorites. And uh, so, uh, anyway, I met Howard, and we talked about one of the things that Howard told me was you know, by then I kind of knew. I love the idea of the studio musician thing. I, I love the uh, diversity and just the whole thing being all about music and not mm-hmm. necessarily show business, you know. Anyway, so Howard says, okay, when you're 20 years old, you should move to L.A. He said, don't wait until you're 22 and don't move when you're 18 or 19. So I wrote it down, you know. <laughs> so by the time I was 20, I loaded up my car with my two pairs of Levi's and all my guitars and we went out to L.A. <laughs> so, <laughs> So then, um, uh, the following year, Howard had a seminar. So, after yeah, Los Angeles, and that was his first seminar. So I enjoyed that and, you know, both those guys It was so enlightening. and um, yeah, It was just a great, great time. So then I went to um, uh, the University of Utah to, to go, when I graduated high school, I went to college there. And Bill Fowler, I don't know if you know Dr. William Fowler, had a program and this was in like 1971 i graduated high school so i was able to to go there and major actually in jazz guitar which and that in those days was way ahead of its time because they most colleges didn't even like classical guitar stuff so much you know they were kind of cool that anyway so i went to school there for uh a uh, couple years, uh, and like like most of the guys, like Lee Rittenauer and Mitch Hogan and a lot of our, my contemporaries, we, we all did the same thing. We went to music school, to college for about two years, grabbed what we needed, and then started working. So, so I, you know, after uh, when I was 20, uh, well, I went back to Cleveland after a couple years of college and, and worked in a cover band, uh, you know, in a club for six nights a week and was able to stash enough money to uh, buy instruments, you know, so I got my different guitars and mandolin, all that stuff, you know. And then uh, just started, you know. My idea was, uh, well, I want to play for anybody at least once, and if it, the whole gig sucks, I won't go back. But I want—I figured the more people that liked what I played, the better. So with that attitude, I started playing Dantes and a lot of a lot of jazz clubs. And uh, one of the, <laughs> the one of the first gigs I got was with Louis Belson's band. And uh, that was, like, exciting because I had just been out And the reason that happened was there was a friend of mine from Cleveland uh, that was a friend of Louie's uh, manager, a trombone player in his band, that booked the band, you know. And I guess this, my friend in Cleveland said, hey, Tim's coming out. If, you know, anything happens, maybe you can help him out. So I got a call after I was here for a few weeks and uh, from uh the guy. His name was Nick. He says, um, hey, you know, uh, we're playing at Dante's on this weekend this was like thursday or something he said why don't you come down and make the rehearsal on friday and if it works out you can do the gig so yeah all right so joe pass was in the band right so he he couldn't make it so no pressure there (laughs) wow (laughs) crazy (laughs) yeah so anyway so i showed up you know an hour and a half early for the rehearsal and i was you know all excited and it worked out great. I got to, you know, I played a little bit, and, and uh, you know, Louis was digging it and stuff, and then, then Louis pulled out, he said, let's do this number something for Joe, which was a guitar feature, you know, you want to see if I could play so it. So it was a funny story, because I, I I played it very well. I really I was very proud of what I did, but I was so excited, I had a volume pedal, and my foot was like, boom, 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 just from nervous, you know, <laughs> That worked out great. So anyway, the good thing about that was with Louis band, and I did a couple records with him after that and a bunch of gigs. But I met immediately like 20 guys, 25 guys in town. And that's how the whole business really works uh, is word of mouth. You know, so I going to play a gig and maybe a saxophone player was doing a little jingle. So he said, yeah, yeah, come on, do that. And then the engineer says, well, I like the way you play. And he recommends you for something else. And it just started like that. So, like I said, I moved here in 74 and, you know, playing a lot of gigs and whatever I could do. But then, as things evolved by 77, I was working day and night, doing records and TV and film and jingles, which was another fortunate thing for me because uh, those, I'll just put those, those four categories, kept me very busy. Because a lot of guys only did records or only did jingles or only TV or something like that. But, it, it was a perfect time because, uh, you know, uh, there was all, a lot of work going on and, and I was able to, you know, do a TV film or a movie or whatever and jingles during the day and then records all night.
2: I think the first thing I want to bring up is how reoccurring these Howard Roberts seminars have been with different people we've talked to, including Lee Rittenour, Ron Eshday, yeah. Joe DiOrio. That was such like a legendary event. that of course you don't know that at the time, but it's so funny how that event keeps cropping up over history. Yeah. Do you remember running into any of those guys there?
3: Well, Lee Rittenour and I met at Howard seminar, the person I was 16 and he was 18 and we've fast friends ever since then. But um, yeah, I think, I think Barry Oshill might've been in there at the time. And, and And a lot of other guys, but mostly Lee and I hooked up at that, um, you know, that's where we met at that seminar, because we were pretty much the younger guys in the band, in in the group, I should say.
2: And I really like how you talk about just how busy it was. You're driving around town a lot. You're doing rehearsals during the day, sessions during the day, gigs at night or record dates at night. I'm wondering if you could give the modern listener, because right now no one's doing that. So I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into like your mindset and and almost you know your mental stamina of being able to to really deliver when you're literally running all day every day.
3: Well, um, you know, it's funny at, at the time. I mean, now with the COVID thing and just the, the workload being a lot less in town in general, there's much less work going on, and. And uh, in those days, though, I was talking to Bob Smith who played drums on that CBS and mm. We were talking the other day about uh, uh, how, you know, we were working so much. I mean, we really did like three dates a day, almost every day. And, you mm. know, and, and, and when you're doing that, boy, our chops were razor sharp. It's just you get a momentum going that is just, it just is. You know, you we, we just go there, we play this, play that, and, and somehow there's a momentum that you accumulate working all the time you know and it, it was exhausting but that was the time to do it too i was young you know and, and uh, a lot of energy and, and the work was it was just fun i loved i always loved the diversity of it you know i would do a, a record with like lionel richie and then later on i'm doing jerry lee lewis and then uh, then a john williams score in the morning you know so it was diversity was i loved it because i think any one if i just had to play one style all the time it would get kind of boring. (laughs) And the other thing I loved and and still do is that when we would work on a piece of music for whatever length of time it was, after we recorded it and we're done, we turn it over and it's like, okay, that's the end of that. Let's not play that anymore. (laughs) You know, it's not like going on the road and playing the same thing all the time, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, I just love the idea of being able to sit there, focus totally on the music you know, put my feet on the amp and the coffee on the thing and not worry about showbiz so much, you
2: know. <laughs> we recently also interviewed Andrew Sinewick, who you obviously know very well. And that was something that really stood out to him also <clears throat> about being primarily involved in studio playing is really, or, or just sideman playing in general, is really getting to focus on the music and not even having to consider the, the front man, the lead you know, everything that comes with that. And I think that's a a really good point to bring up is when you're there to serve the guitar chair or the music chair, that's your whole realm. And there's a lot of enjoyment in that.
3: There's a lot of enjoyment. And the other thing that's great about, well, any any busy music town, but in LA in particular, I've always felt fortunate because all I have to do is show up and play well. But I know that there's a great engineer doing that. The copyist is going to be great. All this stuff, the arrangement, hopefully, is good. You know, There's weak links here and there, but for the most part, everybody's doing a great job of what they're doing, so I don't have to worry about anything else. All I have to do is show up and play.
2: You know? Right. Do you feel that that's more rare these days, where where you have an engineer running the session, you have someone arranging the music, or do you feel like nowadays, maybe a, a guitarist that would be along a similar path that you were on, is innately more responsible for most of that stuff and not just the music.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Because especially with the, the, this COVID virus thing, I was talking to Andrew about that, who's one of my favorites. He's a great, great player, but he, um, we were talking about that and he said, yeah, you know, I got to maintain a studio. I have to do this. And, And then, you know, he's all by himself and then, you know, you might work, you know, several hours on a thing. And then the guy says, well, that's not what I had in mind. And then you got to start again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, cause in the, you know, you're doing a motion picture, at you know, uh, Warner brothers or something, you go 15 minutes over. I get paid. I do an overdub. I get paid. I play banjo and mandolin and dope. Do- I get paid. You know, it's all that stuff. If I'm at home. They don't understand that, you know, and then they, they don't, it's just, a it's a very, it's a more challenging thing. And the other thing is, I can't compete with Capitol Records with my little home studio. I mean, it's good, and it's 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 better than it's ever been to get a good quality sound. In fact, I, I did that whole trio album in my studio at home. It's yeah, it's it's a lot more responsibility. I think the biggest challenge is if if I go into a date with somebody and we're in the control room and am doing the guitar overdubs, and I say, "Well, how about this?" and they I try something, and they go, "Well, no, let's do this." Great. Okay, that took five seconds to figure that out. If I did a whole thing and then send it to the guy and mix it and the guy says, well, you know, it's just, it's a more challenging situation. No question.
2: I agree. I think that's a rare thing that you just can't recreate through the digital technology. The personal interaction. And I mean, obviously that goes into us three as jazz guitar players, you know, jazz is a music that, survives that, that lives and breathes on like personal interaction. But, but in the studio sense, yeah. You know, working with the engineer, working with the arranger right there and being able to do something really quickly, as opposed to hours later, you get an email and you're like, well, okay, but I can't track that until tomorrow. And then by then you'd move your, your mic from your amp or, you know, or your EQ is different. So.
3: Yeah. There's a lot of physical work. I mean, just, you know, if I sit down at a session uh, in a studio with the whole band I, I play. That's all I worry about. I don't have to get the mic and put the mic away and and move the app and all that stuff. You know, it's like I said, it's all the focus is about just playing, which is a real luxury.
2: (laughs) So last week we talked to Mitch Holder yeah, and he had a a great quote and I wanted to run this by you and see what your thoughts are. When you're in the studio and you're working with a producer, he said producers hear with their eyes.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's very true. It's not always though. It's, you know, that's the other thing about this business: is every day, every session, every uh, you know uh, musical scenario is unique to itself. Sometimes producers do listen with their eyes, and then you just okay, here's what it is. But often, you know, I, would, I don't know. Many times they really hear what's going on. You could look really cool, but if it's not really making it, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't. But I'll give you one example. Years ago. Um, Uh, I I play, you know, a lot of classical guitar and stuff, you know, and uh, there was a, I think it was possibly an ovation. Some, somebody came up with a guitar that they wanted me to check out. It was a a nylon string guitar, but it was blue. It was like just blue, you know? And uh, I said, well, that's cool, but I don't want to sit in front of John Williams and he's going to look at a blue guitar. And then, you know, he's, he's not a good example because he's all about the real deal, but, you know, somebody might say, this guy's got a blue guitar. You know, it just seems like that would be... <laughs> so I had a pass on that guitar. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's... There's you know there's also fashion of music. You know, there was the big... Uh, the, the pedal phase, then the... the uh, that kind of went away. The Wawa is a great example. The Wawa came in, and it went oh no that's Wawa, well, that's all. Then it went out, then it came in again, and then, then you know, I ah, know the Wawa's... It's like different... You know, like... Fashion is, you know, fashionable stuff. The, um, well, the, the strats, you know, we used 335s for for years, you know, a la Larry Carlton brought that in, you know. And then everybody started going to the strats, and that became the fashionable sound. You know, and then it, now it's totally diversified with all kinds of guitars. But, uh, yeah, you know, some people, that, that is true sometimes, listening with your eyes. I think that's another reason. It, it was interesting, during that era of, um, like the early 70s or early to mid-70s when, you know, Mitch and Lee and I started getting real busy real fast. I mean, it was like I went from doing nothing to going out and buying a new Cadillac, you know, saying, all right, you know. <laughs> but uh, I think part of that was, it was a, I guess it was a visual thing, a cultural thing, because Tommy Tedesco and Dennis Butterman and all those guys were doing, you know, the majority of the work, but they were of a different generation and culturally you know so i think part of the appeal that we had was oh man get these hip young guys because because the music was getting much more youthful orientated and the thing that really got mitch and Lee and i and uh, tom rotella and guys going is that we could play all the hip new stuff and we could read and we could play the legit stuff too and we understood the jazz stuff and the Freddie Green and the you know all you know across the board because there's a you know a lot of great guitar players that never get a chance to play their great stuff because they can't read they can't read to get the gig you know which is that's a shame because you know I, I always I, I always say I never cared what people didn't do you know you get a guitar player that's fantastic George Benson he can't read but <laughs> so what you know I mean it's
0: Today's episode of High Action is sponsored by Jeff Traugat Guitars. Jeff is a luthier based in Santa Cruz, California, and he brings an incredible quality of artistry and craftsmanship to the acoustic guitar. He only builds about 12 guitars a year, and he develops a very close relationship with each one of his customers. Together, he focuses on the tone and the playability that you want from the acoustic guitar. Here's a recording of me playing my Trigot Acoustic. The playability is amazing, the tone is rich. So for more information, check out Trigotguitars.com.
2: I'm glad you brought up reading. I feel that there's nothing but benefits coming from being able to to visually interpret music on a page. Um, I'd like to get your insight on functioning as a high performance reader. So not just reading it down, but reading it down and making music possibly on the first take, you know, likely definitely by the second and like the type of memory retention that comes with that.
3: Yeah. Well, first of all, you're right. Being able to read is an enormous asset for getting gigs because you, you have to, you know, uh, I would never have been able to play with Louis Belson's band if I couldn't read, you know, I would have never had a chance to play what I played, but equally important, I think is just the intuitive sense of playing where you're not reading, but you know, you have a sense of playing, um, separate from that. But the other thing about reading is that it's so easy to expose yourself to new music and new musical ideas and stuff. I could look at transcriptions of things and, and just learn quickly with reading. It's, it's like learning how to read, um, uh, letters in English, you know, if you couldn't read, it'd be, you know, take forever to learn something, but it's, you know, there's so many great things about reading. Now getting to the other point, um, it's being a guitar player too. It's interesting. uh, Comparing to uh, say somebody in the string section, their stuff is written out. That's what they're going to play. Period. They don't care what you have to say. I mean, it's like play this and you're done. Um, As a guitarist, Guitar being somewhat of an elusive instrument, a lot of guys don't know what is more guitar uh, friendly to write and, and to play on the instrument. Mm-hmm. So part of the secret about being a, like you said, making music out of that stuff, is knowing how to make it musical and yet capture what the guy has in mind. Now here's the thing: when you play with, if I'm playing with a composer, or producer, or whatever that I know. And he knows me and I know I could go in there and, you know, we'll get anywhere from no music at all, maybe a chord chart, you know, maybe nothing to a bunch of fly stuff written all over where it's reading, where you got to really read. So the idea is to to make it, make it sound great. And uh, there's Tommy Tedesco was brilliant at, at this kind of concept, but if I get a part, for instance, well, here's a good example. I, I, I was doing a show one time. I think it was a Simpsons TV show, and uh, the, I, I got a part that was written for slide dobro. So you know, I'm pretty glad I play lap style dobro, and it's it's fun, and it's not. But this part, I think, might have been in unison with flutes or something like that, and it didn't not lie on the instrument at all. It was just just a not right, you know, for that. So instead, now here's here's the wrong way to do it. You don't want to raise your hand in the middle of the session and say, Mr. Composer, this is not playable on this instrument, you know, because that makes him look like an idiot. The producer's going to go, what, this guy doesn't know how to write? And it's Everything is a bad idea about that. Instead, I just played it on my Martin D-18 and made it, it made it work, and it sounded great, and I didn't even say anything about it, because who cares? But it just, all they knew was, boy, that sounds great. As opposed, to the other wrong approach would be to try to play it on the goGo and make a big mess out of it. <laughs> then everybody looks stupid again. So there's those little nuances about how to fix things and start with, Oh, I started say, if I'm working for a composer that I don't really know, and uh, and and I get a part, and, and oftentimes what they call you for is to do your thing, you know, make the part swing or, or sound great or whatever. So I'll kind of mess with the thing and do, you know, intuitively what I think would be good. Then I kind of wait for the reaction from the component. If I if I see smiles and everything, good, keep doing it. If I if all of a sudden I say, ah, wait, what's going on? Then okay, I gotta stick more to what this guy wants to do. And it's a nuance. It's it's all about um doing it. And speaking of Mitch Holder, Mitch, we always laugh about the story. Mitch and I were working for Lalo Schifflin one time. Composer in the we were doing just that, you know, because Lalo, he's always been a cool guy. But we had this part, and he wrote out some guitar parts specifically, and we played it, you know, for a minute, and then we started, well, let's make this better, and we started doing our thing, you know. So it's a big orchestra, you know. We're, we're, we're playing, and and we're getting, you know, I don't know, 25 bars into the piece. And also Lalo, he stops, wait, 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 wait. And he goes, I lie, <laughs> with his accent. He's you know, he, he he heard something different, and he it took him back from him. So he wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Oh, wait, I like that. You know, so it was it was a success. You know, <laughs> we always laugh about
2: that. I like the point you brought up about guitar being this different instrument in a in an ensemble or an orchestral or a studio setting where it requires a lot of formal training, ability to read, but there's also the X factor of each individual player inserting their intuition into, you know, into the context. What are your thoughts on, on really getting outside of the specifics of what notes are actually in the chord versus what you're actually hearing fits in the mix?
3: Right. Well, that, what you decide to play, voicings and, and everything else all depends on what else is going on. If, if, uh, if I'm kind of the only harmonic instrument, say, uh, I would, if there's an A major 7 chord and a B flat 13 and this and that, if I'm the only guy playing chords, I want to play as much of those chords as I can or or that would seem to fit anyway. And um, uh, again, it depends on stylistically too because it might be a clean, pretty kind of sound where you can let it ring and this and that or if it's like more of a, a rock and roll orientated sound a little crunchy kind of guitar sound, some of those things aren't going to work, so I might I might just play some fifths or something like that, depending on what's going on. Um, and the, the sound is another big thing, uh, you know. And, and a big determining sound is besides the tone, bright or not, or some is is the amount of distortion. That that is a real dial in thing. That sometimes, you know, you could be doing a muted thing, and you just want to get a little crunch when you want it, or or else you are just balls out you know uh, real loud distorted sound and, and anywhere in between that but that's a big part of the mix and it all depends on what's going on you know if it's a kind of a pretty little ballad you know you have to pick and choose and, and again every every uh, musical project is unique to its own there's no hard and fast well i'm going to play this because of that because sometimes that doesn't work you know what i mean so it's really, about. I think the whole studio thing for everybody, but for guitar players in particular is, is the flexibility of, of saying, you know, you, you, you're you going to take a shot. Because let's face it, if you get 10, 10 different guitar players performing a piece, you're going to get 10 different total approaches. Um, so if, if I take a, an approach, that that's kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. If I do a thing and say, well, I'm feeling this to be like this. And the guy says, well, no, I'm thinking like that. Okay, then immediately be able to change and and don't get locked into any specific thing, which is another it goes back to another point uh, with the uh, the ease of of uh, giving parts to people in advance, you know that they, oh well, here's the part where, here's what we're doing, and this is going to be like this. I hate that <laughs> because like, T- like Tommy Tedesco said, if if I can't play it in a few minutes, I can't play it. so. I don't like to get, you know, I'm I'm pretty fast at, at doing that stuff. So I like to see it go in fresh. If somebody sends me a piece of music or, or kind of like a demo, this is a la this or that, so, then I start getting preconceived things about what I want to do. And invariably, when you show up at the date, and that all that does is take you down one path. It might not be the path you want. So I like going in fresh and hearing things right away without, you know, like I said, I'll figure out how to play it real quick, but... You know, I like to have a fresh thing because it's not always what they, what you what you um, assumed it was going to be. When you know, if you're working on something for two days and you got a whole thing, and then you going and it's like, oh, wow, you know. <laughs>
2: That's an interesting point you bring up. At this time, can I play your wonderful guitar work on Lionel Richie's "Dancing on the Ceiling" album?
3: Yeah, sure.
2: I actually took the outro portion because there's a little more guitar goodness in there.
3: All right. All right. So.
2: Here is Tim on Deep River Woman.
3: That was a that was a fun track. There, there was, there was uh, we did that with the rhythm section live, you know, there, there wasn't any overdub stuff. So. Wow. And, uh, I remember Lionel just said, hey, Tim, play something, play some kind of intro on this. And, and you know, I said, okay. And I came up with that, you
1: know. And, oh, that's uh, cool. Oh, man, it's, it's beautiful, Tim. And, and it's John's story here taking over for a couple questions, man. Again, so happy to have you on High Action and to hear your stories. Um, uh, just to put a face to the name, Tim, last time I saw you, you and I were talking about our Lionel train collection that you have.
3: Oh. Yeah, that was me over
1: when we were hanging with Sinewick. And so one of these days we got to have a train set hang. And for, for people who are listening, I mean, guitar, guitars and trains, it's like, I mean, they go together like classic cars,
3: right? Basically. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, I listened to some of your stuff. Uh, and well, you sounded beautiful.
1: Thanks, Tim. Thanks, man. Well, again, you know, honor to, to get to really get to talk to you like this. And, um, one thing that really struck me, um, just because I had a couple specific questions for you, it's something you said earlier about the evolution of the sound of the guitar, the trends of the guitar. It's like when you listen to the old, when you listen to the show Chips, and you hear three electric guitar players with wah wah pedals playing that intro theme. And then a decade later, you hear on Magnum PI, somebody ripping on a Strat with heavy distortion. You know, I think a lot of people don't give enough credit to guys like you for really pushing guitar in the pop culture. I mean, a lot of kids grew up watching Magnum PI after school. They'd hear that, and the ones that really wanted to learn an instrument would be like, man, I want to learn how to rip on an electric guitar like that. You know, and, and it's so cool to get to hear you talk about that, the evolution of this instrument and all the gear associated with it too. I'm curious, would you be willing to share a little bit about Valley Arts guitars and maybe that being a hang with Mike McGuire and Paul Rivera and you guys going to these guys saying, Hey, I'm doing these sessions and I need like 20 sounds out of this Stratocaster. How can we change the pickups? And Paul Rivera modifying a lot of those amplifiers so you guys could get different tones. I'm just curious about what those discussions were like, and was there much of a hang at that guitar shop? Because it sounds like written hour, and all you guys were hanging out there. If you guys weren't in sessions,
3: yeah, that was a great hang. I miss those guys, and I miss uh, Mike McGuire. It was great. He built that Valley Art Strat for me. That's the one in fact that I played on uh, on that Lionel Richie piece, and and, uh, and I used that on the Back to the Future. Uh, Johnny B. Good thing that was that yeah. Strat. Yeah. Oh my God, that's like the most.
1: Shall I just say? I think it's the most iconic moment in in cinema history for guitar. Is <laughs> is that moment? I mean, and Norm Norm Harris at Norm's Rare Guitars has said that a number of times, and I I would agree, Tim. I mean, I think it's just so that's cool. So that was a Strat. It wasn't an ES three forty five, even though that's what um, yeah. Michael J. Fox was playing, of course. That's
3: right. Well, my direction when we did that was they said. What was an '85 or something like that, and Van Halen was was on top. You know, I mean, he was like doing all the hammer-on stuff and the pull-offs, and that was coming up. So they said, "Okay, Tim, we want to make this uh, in this one piece go from the 1955 uh, style, and it's going to be a whole we'll go through the history of the guitar to the present day." So okay, so I started with the thing, and then uh, did some of the pull-out and the hammer-on, some Van and then the crazy stuff. And that was my direction. So having said that, that's why I used the strap because I knew I was going to use the whammy bar in particular, because that was a big part of that whole thing as I went to that. Oh, that's awesome. There was a, (laughs) there's a funny story about that. When I was doing that, um, I remember we worked on that film and I just finished that solo thing. And, uh, I came home and my wife said, Oh, we got a call from the guitar player. Um, that moved into town. He, He would love to sit and watch a session. Which was, yeah, great. Tommy Tedesco and let me do that with him, and Larry Carlton was a huge help when I first moved here. Just let me hang around, you know. But, uh, so I said, okay. I looked at my book, and I said, oh, here's another Back to the Future session coming up. That'll be a good one. And so I tell him, he, the guy meets me at uh, the group for the studio at the time, and uh, it was just me over there. So I show up, and he's oh, he's all excited about seeing the studio session and all this stuff. So, remember, in the scene in the movie, when he plugs in that big amp and plays that big huge chord. Yeah. That's, that's the part they were working on this particular day. So I got my amps, I think it was using Fender Rivera mods and stuff like that. And so, he, you know, okay, what's this going to be? And they say, okay, Tim, what we need you to do, pull out your power cord and put your thumb bzz, 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 make noise. Okay, now pound the reverb. So <laughs> make all these ambient sounds that they were going to so this guy, his name is Mark Carter. We became friends after that. But he says, uh, I said. Usually, I said. Usually, there's a lot more involved then making. He's going big time studio guy. What? What the hell is this? You know. <laughs> but anyway, that's it's
0: a great story. It's from the studio, man.
1: Yeah. And, you know, um, gosh, it's so thank you for sharing that with, with us and with the listeners. You know, we have a lot of our students checking this out. They're just going to love hearing that story. And, you know, I guess lastly here, my other question before passing it over to Perry, I know you've worked a lot with John Williams and I was fortunate to get to interact with him a couple of times. He told me about how important George Van Epps was to him early on. Did he share that with you at all? Or any, any of yeah. how he studied with George a little bit, um, in his early years?
3: Oh, no, I didn't know that.
1: Wow. Yeah, he said that Van Epps gave him a lot of co- compositional like ideas, and he s- sat down with him because, of course, we knew John Williams was an awesome jazz pianist. And for those who don't know, go check out him playing with the big bands because it's incredible, some of those recordings of John Williams um, yeah. before he was writing for all the movies, of course.
3: He yeah. you know? was Johnny Williams. Uh, Johnny, Johnny Williams, Williams. yeah. yeah. Uh, with uh, Paul Roberts and John Williams, they were burning tempo. And he's a kind of great. He's yeah. Giant. He's a ridiculously great musician. And George Van Epps, that guy, it's, man, it's ridiculous. And, and I don't know if you ever saw him play.
1: I didn't get so, and this is a great segue over to Perry, too. Perry and I met at USC in 2001 in uh-huh. the studio guitar department. We were both students at Joe Orios and Frank's and, and, yeah. uh, Van Epps had just passed away, I think, that summer, and I was so excited to get to L.A., and, and I'd heard about this guitar night that John Pisano was having that Van yeah. Epps would play at every now and then, and he had just passed at that time. Um, but anyway, great to, ch- great to chat with you, Tim. I'm going to pass it over to Perry here.
3: Real quick, what I was going to say about jo- George Van Epps was the few times I'd seen him play, you know, maybe five or six times, He's playing the most comprehensive, unbelievably sophisticated, beautiful, well-executed stuff. And he's like, he's, he's like, unbelievable. He's just yeah. like, you know, sitting there strumming like nothing. you know. But, yeah, he was something else. By the way, I have an Epiphone guitar that from 1936, that is an Epiphone Broadway with a deluxe neck that belongs to George Van Epps. Before, he gave it to Howard Roberts. Oh, wow. And it's a six-string. George moved on to the seven-string and gave Howard this, this, this guitar. Oh, very cool. And, then, and I first saw that when Mitch and I, uh, when I first moved to town, Howard had a little office on Whitsitt in, in Hollywood, in North Hollywood. And uh, we were walking out one time, and Howard was all about the music. So I'll, I'll never forget. He says, guys, look at this. And he opened up his Mercedes trunk, right, and pulled out this that Epiphone guitar, and he's puts his feet on the bumper, and foot on the bumper, and he's did this. And he's playing. Traffic is like beep, 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 and driving by, and all this stuff's going on. And Howard's grooving in the middle of Woodside Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man, what a
0: character! What a character! Oh, he was. Good. Hey, Tim, it's uh, Perry over here, and uh, it's yeah, great Perry. Great to meet you and get to speak with you. I was just going to...
3: Yeah, you too, also. I listened to some of your stuff this morning. You sounded great, man. You guys oh, are... Thank you. you. Know
0: yeah, thank you. Quite a compliment coming from you. Um, I just wanted to to cycle back to Howard Roberts because it's so amazing how influential he has been on the L.A. guitar scene in uh, yeah. certain generations, people like yourself, Mitch Holder. Um, it's Yeah, it's pretty incredible, and the history that he had in that town I used to live in LA, and one thing I speak fondly about with LA is um, just the sense of community that there is among the guitarists in Los Angeles. Yeah. uh, You know, GIT started like that, but um, for me, moving down there in 2001, you know, John Pisano's Guitar Night was a big right. part of the community and that's why i first heard about your name and i know you're um have had a long career as a studio musician but i hope our listeners also know that you're a fantastic jazz guitar player so right. um, where can some people check out some of your music if they want to hear some stuff i'm, I'm curious to ask about that
3: well you mean my own stuff yes well you know, i've got two cds that i recorded and unfortunately it's it's a long time ago and I was almost in the process of recording again last year before this COVID thing hit, with a quartet, with Abe Boreal and Rich Ruttenberg is playing, or Randy Waldman plays keyboards, or different guys, nice, and absolutely. Uh, nice. So we we had been playing at my house, and um, and it, it, the band was just sounding great because one of the one of my favorite things, you know, as far as personal, I love I love music for the moment, and I love the idea of here is the only direction I give these guys is here's the song. And then it goes every which direction it might want to. And, and everybody has the freedom to do what they want. So um we were about to do a, a, another record and before things stopped with this virus, but I've got that trio CD. And a, I did a, another CD uh, before that. It's a little more commercial, but it's called one piece of the big picture. Mm-hmm. And you know, none of them uh, <laughs> took off typical jazz guitar records, but yeah. Um, anyway, that and, you know, just, just different uh, things that I've played on. I guess other people's albums, I've had uh, some things to do. But my own stuff, I, I hope to be able to record this this new music again pretty soon because um, I'm just into some, like I said, spontaneity. Spot and you get the right guys, and it's like a conversation, the way it plays out. And people know when not to talk and lay back and play. And, and you know, it's all about listening.
0: It definitely is all about listening. And um, one thing I'm kind of curious to ask, uh, maybe that's happened more currently for you, is you know, musicians, we've all been going through so much uh, from the pandemic. Um, We usually talk in New West about how we're trying to always make the best of it and and come out stronger on our instruments. Um, Do you feel that the pandemic has uh, opened up new avenues for you uh, on your guitar? Have you been, you know, exploring different? styles that maybe you wouldn't have uh, as a result of this um is there anything that you know is kind of new for you musically since uh the lockdown and everything
3: well since the pandemic thing i've been playing a lot more by myself you know because we can't get groups together so um i'm exploring uh i've been really getting well for years for since i think i was about 20 years old I was, I was always intrigued with harmony. I've been getting into some real upper extension harmonic concepts, mm-hmm. which involve like um, uh, like a major seventh chord with a flatted ninth and a minor chord with a major third and uh, stuff like that. That is, I look at it in a different way. I, I kind of uh, approach it like uh, there's a major seventh, major ninth, 13th, 15th, 17th and stuff like that, and it's very dependent on on, uh, range and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, what that is, it's an E, like you could call it E 17th or 19th, but it's an E major chord, but it's got uh, some other notes in there, Uh, like uh, like F natural. I can play an F major 7 like this. Yeah. I
0: don't
3: know if you can hear that. But that's like an F major 7 chord, but there's a G flat it. Yeah. Yeah. Some other stuff like that going on. Those or a- tight, yeah, those really tight voices.
0: Yeah, yeah. they sound great. I, I heard a solo thing you were playing online. Um, it was a YouTube clip from an interview you had done in the past, and you had just a beautiful approach using a lot of voicings like that, playing rubato, uh Yeah. And, and so that, I know you're... Uh, you know, your jazz foundation must have served you so well for all these sessions that you uh, had encountered and all these different recording artists that you worked with. Oh, well, yeah. Well, um, I am, I am uh, sort of uh, wondering about if you could share a couple of little stories with us and our listeners just about, like, maybe one of the more challenging uh, environments you've written in, in the studio and how you dealt with it. Because I think you're obviously a, an ace reader, but there had to have been moments where you were like, "Hmm, this is going to be a tough thing to pull off." And how do you remember any of those things? How did you uh, kind of deal with that?
3: All right. Well, um, let me see if I could think of. Uh, <laughs> well, there was one interesting, just just recently. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard about the the twelve guitar session <laughs> that we did <laughs> with with uh, John Powell. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was that was something else because the the story behind that was you know uh, it was everybody in town Dean Parks uh, George During Mitch me Joe De Blasi, uh Carl Rehayan Paul Jackson Jr Tom Rotella we we you know got a motion picture call for I think it was on a Saturday actually one Saturday and Sunday okay great uh, we took the call and then uh, they said. Uh, I guess somewhere in the, the email said oh, it's gonna, there's going to be twelve guitars. So I said, "Great, that'll be a riot," you know. So we took the call and then, and then like I was saying, they they start sending music over. So they, you know, I got emails. So, oh, here's here's the first three pieces we're going to do, and it was all mandolin, right? Which is fine, you know. I, I use a mandolin. I sometimes I tune it like a guitar because I'm more comfortable with that. But oftentimes I tune the real mandolin tuning and, and do that. So anyway, so we get the music and I looked at the first page and it's like, oh, yeah, doodle, 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 doodle. Okay, yeah, nothing next. I I said, okay, piece of cake. So then uh, later, (laughs) I said, well, I better look at the tempo markings on this thing. So it it turns out it's like 156 and there's all these and and things were changing all the time. And I had to use the mandolin tuning because John Powell was a, uh, uh, violinist, so he he knew how to write where it lied on on the instrument pretty much, you know. Okay. Anyway, so so I looked at that and I said, well, I gotta focus on this. That was the one time I was glad they sent something, you know. But I'm thinking, man, this is hard. So then they keep sending more and more music, you know, as the the week is going on. And I'm talking with Mitch Holder because he. I said, did you see that stuff? He said, Yeah. He said, I can't play it. He said, well. Maybe we can play it, split it up, and we're all talking about different ways we're going to be able to do it. So the funny, the funny thing is, so you know, there was finally they sent out all this. Each one was was more difficult than the last. This, this stuff. We go, okay, so uh, let's see how it goes. And uh, we, oh, we also knew there was twelve of us, so nobody wanted to be the one guy that couldn't make it, right? So everybody was trying to figure it. So we show up at this day on Saturday morning, and usually. The guys show up. Hey man, what's happening? And we're having a good time and laughing. And everybody kind of showed up with this little timid uh, thing. Can you play it? No, I can't. Maybe we can play this part. I mean, you know, it was it was hysterical. I mean, every there was a, the one time that that was like really. I don't know how we're going to do this. We thought well, we have to punch in every little once in a while. It's easy to do with Pro Tools or something. Um, the, you know, everybody these strong, confident players who are all like kind of meek and walking in. But then it turns out. So we pull up the first piece, and when the first one we actually had a play to tempo, and everybody made it, everybody played great. The next one was so ridiculous, we didn't know how it was going to go, but John said, well, here's what I want to do, because he, I think he realized that we didn't realize until then that he he wanted a certain kind of a wash. He said, well, you guys play it, well, 12 of us play mandolins, play it at the tempo that you feel you can do it, and, and just make the changes so we had to really count stuff. But it turned out to be this real... Um, combination of everybody playing these harmonies and stuff, and it worked out really great. But it was that was a funny thing where it was like, you know, everybody walked in like, I don't know how this is going to work. <laughs> and like I said, nobody wanted to be the one guy that wasn't making it. You know, right?
0: right. You never hear the end of it. You know?
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you But I don't know, there's, there's usually I can't think of a time when I really got um, stuck where right? I just couldn't couldn't play it because if, if I'm sure that things came up were It was unplayable or uncomfortable, or something. And I would kind of change it. You know, I would just make it work, get, you know, figure out what the essence of what was going on and do that.
0: Yeah. I remember having this conversation once with this great piano player who was accompanying a classical piano player who was accompanying all kinds of people. Yeah. Part of her job. And she'd read all this crazy shit like all the time. I'd be looking at the page. I'm just like, how are you? Capturing all of that, and sometimes she'd say, "You know, sometimes I'll just kind of gloss over something, or I'll kind of fake it, or I'll, I'll just sort of change it so it's a little bit easier and more playable." You can do right. those, like you're saying, in the moment, and perhaps a certain composer or producer may not really know the
3: difference, especially if you're making it sound good, like you would obviously. Well, that's right. It's, it's got to sound good, and, and sometimes if, if there's something um, that, like Tommy Tedesco, brought this up years ago. He said, if there's something that's, you know, like a chordal thing all written out and stuff, and the first time you play it, he says, well, play what you can. You know, if there's if there's a five-note chord, but you can only grasp at that point, the three notes or two notes of it or whatever it might be, play that and then, you know, figure it out as you go. But the very first time you play it, make it work like that, because the last thing you want to do is go, <laughs> play a bunch of nonsense that sounds horrible, trying to play it. So you know, you make it, make it work, and play what you can, and uh, and then try to figure out how to make it. Sound. But I don't think I ever got busted where they said, "Okay, go home. This ain't making it." <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I don't think you did, and, and your resume certainly backs that up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: It was uh, in my, I think I just got my studio up and running. It was in another home that I lived in. And uh, the guys came over and it was like, yeah, let's play. And we had no real intention of recording this an album. We just played. So most of those are just, you know, let's play this, play that. And we had a real casual, loose time with it. And then uh, weeks later, I, I pulled it up and I said, well, you know, this might be okay back at it. I, I want to try to fix a bunch of stuff. And uh, yeah, I had that and that thing going on. And then I listened to it, and there was one of the songs. I said, "Well, maybe I'll replace that lick or something." And it just never uh, kept that same feeling, the naturalness of it, because that was all just live, and we just, like I said, we it was really a fun thing because we had no intention of really doing anything except playing. So we had that relaxed attitude about it. Yeah, and and, uh, with those guys, like I said, we just called the tune, and it went every which way after that.
0: That's beautiful, man. Well done.
2: Tim, thank you so much for for being part of this. And um, actually, one more question. Was that that Blonde Gibson you were playing on that album?
3: No. That is a a Guild Artist Award. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I had that for years. It's a nice, beautiful art style.
2: So I've seen a lot of videos with this beautiful Blonde Gibson hollow body. I'm curious, what model is that?
3: That is a one off. It's a Super 400, but it's a thin line. And, and you could, there's, if you looked on like reverb.com and those kind of, those thin line Super 400s will come up. But that's the only one I've ever seen with the Florentine cutaway, mm-hmm. which is a pointed cutaway, which is, I love it because it, it's, um, you, can, it, you know, the rounded Gibson cutaways are a little bit stingy as far as letting you get up there. They're not as open as the, the uh, you know. Is it fully hollow? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a carved spruce, carved back, and everything. You know, it's a real high end guitar. And uh, uh, this is one of my favorites.
2: Man, well, be safe and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
3: Yeah, keep playing, huh?
1: Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.